Revelation 20. So where are we in Revelation 20? Well, the Lord has come back at the close of the seven years of tribulation. Uh, we've been teaching this from a premillennial view. There is the postmillennial, the, the amillennial views, and you, I don't know exactly where everybody falls. Um, uh, I, I think every, every one of the views can make some significant points according to Scripture. Uh, I've studied them all, and I, I tend to lean towards the premillennial view. So that's the way I've been teaching this. But I will tell you that where the Bible is black and white clear, we need to be black and white clear with people as we teach the Word of God. Where the Bible has a little bit of gray, we need to teach it as being gray and not try to make it black and white. Uh, so the Bible will always defend the Bible. We don't need to prop it up. And where it's clear, let's walk in it. And where God gives us some insights but doesn't give us full understanding, let's thank Him for the insights and apply them and wait for the, uh, the good stuff He's going to reveal when we see Him. Amen? But this book of Revelation, if you, if you go back to the beginning when we, we did an introduction, we said this is the apocalypsis in the Greek. This is the apocalypse. This is the revealing of Jesus Christ in a way that we never knew Him from the Gospels. This is, not, this is no longer a little baby lying in a manger. This is not Jesus who's walking by the Sea of Galilee just healing people and ministering to people. It's not the meek, mild-mannered, social justice Jesus that many have created Him to be. Uh, this is Jesus who possesses those qualities and attributes, but He's far more than that. We learned in chapter 1, He has eyes like fire, He has a voice like thunder, His hair is white like snow. Believe me, He is a different Christ today because He's glorified. So when we celebrate uh, Christmas, and interestingly enough, this weekend, we're going to start a two-part Christmas series. And I want to leave Matthew's Gospel, which we've been studying verse by verse, and I want to move over to the Gospel of John. The reason for it is because most of us, every Christmas, in, the, in our mind, we think about the birth narrative of Christ as described by Matthew and Luke. And it's a clear, descriptive picture of Christ. There's, there's Bethlehem, there's a stable, there's a Mary and Joseph, there's a little baby in a manger, there's angels, there's shepherds, there's wise men, there's a star. All this is going on. And we, that's what we embrace at Christmas time because we get this feel or this picture that that's what Christmas is about. Well, what Matthew and Luke are giving us is a historical and a, a physical picture of the birth of Christ. John tracks to a different course. John is not interested in the historical and the physical. John wants us to experience the supernatural and the eternal. And so in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, we're going to unpack that Sunday morning. It is powerful, but the series is going to be uh, Emmanuel, God with us, and this weekend we're going to focus right in on that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. We're going to talk about the incarnation of Christ and the power of that theology, that doctrine, and what it should mean to us today. If it does anything, it ought to set our feet to flight where we go out and share the gospel with people and, and love them. By the way, I, 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 uh, all week long in the morning I've been praying for you, praying for the body, and my prayer has been, Lord, make everyone who's not out sharing their faith, who's not following obediently the Spirit 
as they come into discussions with people. Make everyone that's not being obedient to the Word of God and to the gospel, sharing the gospel, make them miserable today. <laughs> and I've heard it's been working. <laughs> some, some of you have shared with me your stories. Uh, Erlene uh, shared, and I'm not going to take the time or ask her to come up and share the story right now, but a, a, a wonderful opportunity on Monday morning, the next morning, that she had a chance to share and bring clarity and bring attention to the Word of God because the Word should always trump our opinions. Amen? And so, so God's doing it, and, and just be faithful to it. Let Him do the speaking. Let Him speak through you. So let's get started if we can. So we're, we're, we're at the final, the final, the end of this world as we know it. Uh, the final climatic battle of Armageddon is now over. We studied that last chapter. God won that without a fight. I mean, He's, he, he's God, right? And now the millennial kingdom has begun. That's a thousand-year reign where Christ rules literally on the earth. Now, we come to the end of Satan's reign as the prince of this world. Here in chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And the overarching theme of the chapter is a closer look at the millennial reign of Christ, where Christ establishes a reign on the earth, and those who come with Him, you and I who have been raptured, the church, we will reign with Him. It's an amazing story. Uh, look at verse 1, if you will. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. We often imagine this huge cosmic struggle somehow between God and Satan that goes on continuously. We all know that God's going to win in the end, right? But I think a lot of us have this picture in our mind that we assume that until the end comes, it's kind of touch and go. Well, this chapter is going to clarify for you that there's not even a battle between God and Satan. There's, it's not even a good fight, okay? Uh, it's very important that we understand theologically that Satan is not the evil counterpart to God, okay? He, God is God, and there is no other. No one comes close to God. Satan is nothing more than a created being of God. Now, there's a passage in Scripture, Deuteronomy, just write it down. I'm going to share quite a few references, and the reason I'm not going to read all of them is because it gives some of you who are Bible students homework assignment. You can go back and you can check these Scriptures out like the Bereans did when Paul would, would, would speak. Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Period. No one to compete with God. And Satan, who was previously known as the archangel Lucifer, being a created being, if you want to guess, pit him against somebody who would be close to his equal, it would be Michael or Gabriel. Because they too are created archangels, okay? But, but none of them are God, and no, none of them can compete with God. It, that's, I'll tell you, that, let me just give you a, a, a practical parallel to show you the futility of man, the asinine futility of man. 
The Bible speaks in the Old Testament quite a bit about those who take a piece of wood and they start carving it. And they take a piece, they chop it off, they put it in the fireplace to warm themselves. And the other piece, they carve into an image. And this, they might even put some gold or some, some kind of a precious metal on it. And they start worshiping it. And yet the Bible says, God spoke through the prophets, it has no eyes, it cannot see, it has no ears, it cannot hear, it doesn't have a mouth, it can't speak, it can't walk. And here's what we need to understand about those who take on images or idols. That whatever you have created in your mind to be an idol or with your hands to be an idol, it is always less than you. Forget about being equal with God. It's not even up to your standard. It can't do what you can do. Because you are its creator. God created you. So that's the foolishness of man, to create idols that are less than themselves. Why would you do that? If you're going to have an idol, it ought to be God, right? <laughs> because he's greater than us. Not someone who's less than us. When Satan, uh, when we think about Satan from a heavenly perspective, before uh, he's cast into the lake of fire at the end, we're going to say, the Bible tells us that we're going to say, is this the one who troubled the whole world? We're going to be blown away. Why did we give him such a place, a position in our minds? Let me give you a passage on that. Isaiah 14, verse 16 and 17. Isaiah 14, 16 and 17. It says, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrow its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? This guy? He's a weak-kneed, watery-eyed wimp compared to God. Honestly, God doesn't even have to fight him. God just speaks the word. And, and, and what we're going to see here, which is pretty powerful, uh, as we get into the next verse, uh, it's interesting that it's an angel who sends Satan to this bottomless pit. It's not even God. It's just an angel. It doesn't even tell you who the angel is. It's an anonymous angel. Just look with me, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, you're probably wondering what that's about. We're going to talk about it later in, our, in this chapter. John deals with that. But it is ironic that Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb. He tried to incarcerate Christ, but he couldn't. Here now, God is incarcerating Satan because he can. It's important to understand that Satan isn't being held captive for punishment's sake. He's being held captive for the purpose of a restraint. That for this thousand-year reign, when Christ comes to the earth and sets up his kingdom and rules out of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, that 
there is a restraint placed on Satan and all of his demonic forces and his army. They are all sent down into the pit. And that's where they'll be until the thousand years is up, and then God's going to release them for a short time. Interestingly, look what he said in the text. He, he, he's holding them captive in a bottomless pit, which, by the way, is not hell. Hell, the final destination for all eternity, is the lake of fire. If he sent him to hell right now, he wouldn't come back later. So he puts him in this, this abyss, abuso in the Greek, and that's where he's at. Uh, now, you might be wondering, what kind of chain can hold the devil? Well, I have no clue, but obviously God can do it. And through this angel, he's able to withhold Satan from his activity. We know that there are demonic spirits even right now that God has already sent down into this bottomless pit chained up. They're there right now. So if he can do, the, uh, if he can do that to demonic spirits, he can certainly do it to Satan. Now in Jude chapter 6, or ch chapter 6, Jude 6, you'd be looking all night if it was chapter 6. <laughs> Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So after the thousand-year reign, well, actually in the, in the uh, tribulation, uh, one of the judgments of God is to release demonic spirits, and we, we, we've already studied that. But at the very end, he's going to release Satan and his army once again for a short time on the earth. And there's a purpose behind it, and God's behind the whole thing. He's the one that's orchestrating it, and we'll look at it here in just a few moments. Now, uh, by the way, this leads me to a side note away from our text just for a moment. There are many Christians today who I think are misguided there has been a misinterpretation of the text in Matthew uh, chapter 16, 19, where it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, I'm going to tell you that our passage in Revelation shows that there is no man who can bind Satan without, uh, with his prayers. The only way Satan can be bound is by a divine initiative, not by man. You do not have the power to bind something on earth and then it's bound in heaven. You don't speak over God. If you remember, we're the servant. He is the master. And so he's not given us that delegated authority to that degree. He did give that to his disciples for a specific purpose when he sent them out. But for us to think that somehow we can command Satan and march and, 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 and order him around, God has not given man that ability to do that. In fact, what the Bible tells us about Satan for you and I is that when you sense his presence, flee. Leave. Don't stay in that setting. Don't try to address him. Just go. Get out. Okay? 
and, and don't make him the point of your, of your, your life. Uh, some people spend all day looking behind every bush for, for a demon. And forget it. God's given you everything you need to live a fruitful life in Him, but also to face trial and persecution and suffering. That's all part of the game. You know, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him out of them all. We don't need to be chasing down demonic spirits. That's God's work. God's going to deal with that. And so in the Matthew passage, Jesus is speaking. Let me tell you what it's talking about and how it's misdirected oftentimes. He's speaking directly to the apostle Peter and indirectly to the other apostles. And he's, his words meant that Peter would have the right to enter the kingdom himself, that he would have the general authority symbolized by the possession of the keys, and that preaching the gospel would be the means of opening the kingdom of heaven to those who are going to receive it and the closing of heaven to those who won't. It was more about when he was sending them out, know that when you go into some homes, they're not going to receive you. Shake the dust off your feet because they're bound. And those who, come, who receive your message walk in. The door's open. I'm giving you the keys. What's the key? Salvation, the gospel, the message. Share the message. If they don't receive it, close the door. Did you know that when they would shake the dust off their feet? And the Jews did that, by the way. Whenever they would cross over the boundary line into Samaria or some pagan land, the land of the Philistines, if they crossed over, when they came back in, they'd stand right on the border of that land and they would shake the dust off their feet. And they were saying to the people in that land, we reject you because you reject God. It was actually a judgment. We reject you because you reject God. So uh, that's the understanding here in the text. Don't, don't take, and here in the, in, in the text, this angel is dealing with Satan like he's nothing. Not because the angel has the power to do that, because God in his initiative directed the angel to do it. And when God directs, it's going to be done. Okay. Uh, look at verse 3, the last part of the verse, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He's bound up so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Satan's main mode of attack is revealed here. He's the deceiver. That's what he is. If, it's, if that's true, then the most potent defensive weapon that Satan has is the opposite of the truth of the Word of God. It's to lie. But he doesn't just give us blatant lies. Many people are too smart for that. What he does is he uses schemes. He tries to make it look like it's truth. This is the if you look at any cult today, by the way, all the world religions today are false. I, I'm not trying to be mean. That's not, my that's not my personal opinion. They are all false. If they do not line up with the truth of this Bible, then what they are is a knockoff. And what they do is they'll take bits and pieces. They, 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 they steal bits and pieces of Scripture and just enough truth that it lures someone in. 
But Satan can never and never will walk in the truth. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. And his lies are, are, makes weak people vulnerable, those who don't know the word. That's why today what concerns me so much about the modern church, and I can't speak for other countries, I'm not in them, I can only speak for America. Something tells me that in other parts of the world, from what I, my travels and from what I've learned from missionaries and others, it's a totally different ballgame there than it is here. We've just had a little too much consumerism mixed in with our Christianity here. And so we, uh, we kind of like things the way they, we've set them up, whatever that is. We have created church to be what we like. And if I don't like it, if it changes, I'll go somewhere else. Kind of like, well, I've always bought a Ford, but man, lately I've not been happy, so I'm going to go check out Toyota. And we treat God's word, God's message. We treat the church in the same way oftentimes. And the greatest concern I have is we're walking in uh, sensuality. We're, we're letting the five senses determine whether what we are experiencing is right or not. The five senses, as opposed to walking in the truth, the promises of the truth of God. The tr reality is nobody can be up all the time. There's going to come a time when you are emotionally down. There's going to come a time when you're in a difficult place, you've been praying, and you're not getting the answer that you think you need. And that's going to cause you to question, where's God when I need Him? But part of that struggle is because we are so experiential in our relationship with God. And while experience is part of our relationship with God, it should never be what drives us to God or the lack of drive us away. I mean, God's always going to respond because He's faithful and true, the Bible says, right? So I don't believe in the healing power of God. I believe in God who can heal. I do not believe in faith. I believe faith leads me to what I believe in, God. And some people have put their faith in their faith. And they put their faith in the word of faith. If I speak it, it's going to happen. I'm going to declare it, and it's going to be done. Oh, my goodness. Have they not read the whole Bible? And, and so we need to be careful because this is where Satan functions and operates. In the church, we get sucked in to these lesser things that are not what make the church rich and pure. Like I shared with you when I was in India, in Gangtok, which is way up in the north. I mean, you're looking at the Himalayan mountains. That's how far north. It's so far north in India that the people are Asian. They look like they're from Tibet, which is just over the border, you know? And, uh, and we were up there, and, and, in that re and it's, a, it's actually a, a kingdom. It's called the Sikkim district. And, and they have, a, they have a, a rule, an edict, and the edict is that you're only allowed to have one child. So when a family, when a couple have another baby, 
they just set it out on the street in a little basket and hope that somebody comes and takes the baby. And so uh, Pastor Marshall, uh, an Indian, uh, went to Gangtok and started an orphanage for that very reason. We went and visited and spent uh, a full day with him. And that day, uh, we had worship with the children. The kids ranged in age in the room of probably four years old all the way up to 18. And it was a room that was one quarter of this half. That's how big, just one little quarter. And there were chairs that had been placed along the perimeter of the, all the walls. And some of us sat in those chairs. Then they marched in the children quietly. These kids came in and sat on the floor. And the workers came in and sat on the floor. The teachers came in and sat on the floor. They all sat on the floor. And Pastor Marshall got up, a very humble, broken man. And he said, uh, we must now pray. We, we must now pray. Never forget it. And those kids came off of their rear ends and fell prostrate, every one of them. And everybody in the room began to pray out loud, violently before God, crying, children crying before God. It was just a holy hum, something you would never see in America. And I'm not suggesting that that's how we ought to do it. I'm just telling you that's their experience. That's what they do. And so after that experience, I was blown away. I was just weeping. As I was praying, I was weeping, overwhelmed by the urgency of, the, of these children and these workers and Pastor Marshall. And we were outside later in the, in the day, and I said, Pastor Marshall, what was that? What were they praying for? Because they're praying in their language, you know? And he said, they're, they were, well, on Wednesdays today, we pray for America. For the salvation of souls in America. That was our focus today. Oh, and here's this little church. Doesn't have any of the accoutrements, any of the things that we find necessary. And yet they are seeking the face of God and they're ministering to children who have no home, no parent, no future apart from this orphanage. And God is doing a mighty work. This is what I'm talking about. Satan is such a deceiver to lead us down a, this, this primrose path. This is what church ought to look like. And I'm so upset because what was that song we sang? I, you know, I couldn't even, man, the, the drum beat was way too loud and blah. Oh, my. God help us. Amen. Uh, the last I checked in Scripture, worship is about God. It is not about us. And so we just need to get this. One theologian said, this deluding of men, getting them to accept the follow uh, and follow lies and false hopes under the persuasion that they are accepting and following the truth is the great work and business of Satan in every age. One more thought on that. We know that Satan hasn't bound at the finished work of, he wasn't bound at the finished work of Christ. He wasn't bound at the resurrection. He wasn't bound at the, uh, the launching of the church. He was still free to do his work. God gave him freedom to do it. He's being restrained here at the very end. 
you say, uh, what was he doing? Well, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, at the end here, what we're finding in Revelation 20 is he's not going to devour anybody. He's been bound up, okay? This thousand-year period is often known as the millennium, and throughout church history there has always been uh, this understanding that in the end Christ wins, and you and I are experiencing it here in the text. Spurgeon said this about the millennial reign of Christ. I love this. He said, Let us rejoice that Scripture is so clear and so explicit upon this great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the whole world. We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all the nations shall walk in the light of the glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory which shall have its center there shall spread over the whole world, covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness, and delight. For this we look with joyful expectation. Amen to that. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's great speculation as to who will sit on these thrones and judge. Well, it's plausible that it's the 24 elders that we've studied here all the way back to Revelation chapter 4, and they're mentioned uh, throughout the whole book. Or maybe it's the apostles. Maybe it's, it's the 12 that will sit and, and will judge. Or the company of the saints as a whole who will judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3 gives us that insight. It's, it's really hard to know for sure. This is one of those places where I don't think any pastor can say definitively this is what it means. Uh, at least I, I haven't been able to see that by Scripture. But I think it's very plausible that this reference of the judging of angels mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3 is more likely that these are the saints who are ruling on earth with Christ and, and who are giving this judgment. And then it says in four, uh, verse 4 uh, later, it says, "...they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." Uh, so while Satan is bound for a thousand years, these saints uh, reign with Jesus and, 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 and they administrate. That's what they're doing in this thousand year period. They're administrating the kingdom of Christ over the entire earth. They're reigning over those who pass from the earth of the great tribulation to the earth of the millennium. Um, there will be people who make it through uh, the tribulation and... Uh, and don't think that they're all saved, okay? But those of the believers who, who make it, who are not martyred, they too will make it. They'll have children in this thousand-year reign. Their offspring will live on the earth, okay? John makes mention of the tribulation, uh, and I want to read verse 4 again. Let's look. It says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And so if you it, just write these passages down, Revelation 2, 26 through 28, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, 
verse 22 in chapter 3 also. And then also, going back to the passage I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. Because uh, these folks, these Christians, would not worship the beast or his image. They did not receive the mark. In the millennium, because they did not receive, they are going to reign with him. That's pretty cool. John mentions here the tribulation saints so as to encourage them, I think. Because they're living in that day under great persecution from Rome. This doesn't mean that others will be left out. So it has a dual meaning. A lot of prophecy has a dual meaning. This, this is a special vindication for the tribulation saints. They suffered under Antichrist who said, I will rule the earth. Now they are in authority and Antichrist has been destroyed. So these martyrs are literal. I don't believe they're, they're, it's spiritual in connotation. And I think it represents all who gave their lives in faithfulness to Christ. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So what's he talking about? The first resurrection are the saints who come up, the, this, which happens at the beginning of the millennial reign, and they rule with Christ. This second group that he mentions here, uh, where he, he says, the second, over such the second death has no power, but they will be pre... Okay, so this second group, the second resurrection is at the end of the thousand years. Now he raises the dead who did not believe because they're about to face the great white throne of judgment. Okay? In John chapter... Write this down. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. And here it is. There's two groups. What it doesn't give you is the, the time frame of the two groups. But Christ says, Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You don't raise those who are being judged during a thousand-year reign. You raise them when the judgment comes. But the ones who are raised to life, now they have a thousand years to live that with Christ in a position of a ruling authority that Christ gives them, a delegated authority. Kind of exciting. So those are two separate events separated by a thousand years. And uh, just try to understand, and we can talk afterwards if you want about that a little bit more. Uh, now, if the first uh, resurrection is a singular event, then that will argue well for the post-tribulation rapture because it implies that all the saints receive their resurrection bodies at the same time, immediately before the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. However, if this first resurrection is an order or a class encompassing previously dead believers who are at once with the Lord, which is what I believe, the raptured church, which is already in heaven, and saints from the Great Tribulation, then the idea fits into a pre-trib framework. Understand, the first resurrection is not an event, but an order of resurrection 
including all the righteous who are raised from the dead before the millennial kingdom begins. Now, let's, look, let's turn our focus to the battle, the great battle, the final battle that comes at the close of the thousand-year reign. That's what John deals with next. Look at verse 7. He says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So, many of us have this picture that during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, everybody is a believer, and everybody uh, has a changed heart. Not true. However, what Christ does legislate is the, 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 the morals on the earth. So, even those who have rejected Him on the inside, they still have to apply live under the rules that He has given because He's sovereign, okay? So they're going to live under the rules. The reason God releases Satan from the pit is so the deceiver can identify by his activity who are those, not for God's sake, God already knows, who are those that only obeyed on the outside, they were morally good people, but in their heart, it is evil. Have you, you know that that's a common response people give. I, when I talk to people about why would God need to send Christ, and of course the answer is because none are righteous, no, not one. All men are sinful. And left to our own demise, we would never be able to merit God's grace with our own acts of righteousness. The, the, the bottom line is man left to himself is evil in his heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And so, so the reality is a person can hide from me what their heart is. They can hide from you their true heart intentions. But when God re releases Satan on the earth for that short time, that's when that heart will come out. The reason God is doing this is to show us, all of us, that He is just in what He's about to do at the great white throne of judgment. That I am not unfair in my judgment. That neighbor that you lived with during the thousand-year reign who was so kind and nice and came over and took your trash out to the edge of the street every day and brought the can back for you and always had nice things to say. When Satan is released, those people whose hearts are not given to God, they will be given to Satan. And it'll be, it will be obvious to everyone. Nobody is going to be surprised because you're going to see what's really in the heart before the judgment. So God really does cover every base, doesn't He? It's quite amazing. Now, let's look at this final battle. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So who are these rebels? 
They are those who survive the great tribulation. They enter into the millennial kingdom, and they, their descendants continue. Those who are born during the millennium will live to its conclusion and will not be required to make a choice between Satan and Christ until the very end. Gog and Magog, these are the prophetic enemies of Israel that are found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But the battle described in those chapters of Ezekiel seems to be a distinctly different battle from this final battle, okay? John seems to be borrowing the term Gog and Magog, okay, to use it symbolically. Uh, the battles described in Ezekiel take place before the return of Jesus, perhaps before or during the tribulation. This is the final battle. Christ has come back. And clearly, He's taken His place at the end of the thousand-year reign, okay? Uh, and they marched, verse 8, or verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So as Satan is released, get the picture at the end, after a thousand-year reign of Christ where morality was over all the earth. There are also some incredible supernatural things going on where children are playing with lions and, and, and other predators. God has reversed the order. Back when Noah took the animals on the ark, the, the, the animals had been given this natural fear of man. And now God reverses that order under the thousand-year reign, and these animals are now coming again to man. Isn't that beautiful? So there's some wonderful things happening, and we're not going to go into all that tonight. But what else is happening is we see here that people are going to rise up with Satan and they are going to try and battle against God. What an asinine enterprise. Can you imagine? Uh, after this short-lived battle, and by the way, it really is short-lived. If you read what it says here, I'll just read it again. They, they show up around Jerusalem. They encamp the city of Jerusalem, the, all of these these evil people led by Satan and his forces. And as they, as they surround the beloved city, the Scripture says, fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. Not much of a battle. Yeah. Uh, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Remember back in the tribulation when God deals with the beast and the false prophet? He did not send them to a bottomless pit. He sent them to the lake of fire, the final hell, the eternal hell. Now he takes Satan and he puts him in the same place. So he released Satan just for a time so that we on the earth or those who are in that thousand year, all of us, we would see who really is with God, and who is not. So that as the great white throne of judgment takes place for the lost, for those who reject Christ, you would not look upon them and go, oh, I can't believe he's there. 
because he would have he would Satan would have this would have he would have followed Satan and he would have been exposed as not uh, following Christ. Okay. Now about the judgment of the great at the great white throne, verse eleven. Then I saw a great white throne and him uh, who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. What that's referring to is that in the presence of God, when that throne uh, appears, uh, heaven and earth flee to hide, and they can't. There's no place they can hide in the presence of the throne, white, great white throne, where judgment is about to be executed. Who sits on the throne? The Bible tells us that the judge is Jesus. In John 5, 22 through 27, write that down. You can do a little homework on that yourself. John 5, 22 through 27. The same John that's writing this revelation for us that God used to record the, the visions. Uh, so Christ is. But, you know, honestly, and this is where it's plausible, um, it could that it's the triune God. On that throne and so the, the purity of it the holiness of it so much so that heaven and earth can't even hide from it <laughs> everything is brought out into the open in the presence of God on the throne uh, most Bible scholars believe that Christians will never appear before the great white throne aren't you glad for that amen it isn't because we we hide from it no one can hide we just learned that right uh, the idea is that we are spared from this awesome throne of judgment because our sins have already been judged by Christ on the cross. God's judged us. Amen? So we are not escaping God's judgment. We're not hiding from God's judgment. We have satisfied God's judgment already. Thank God. If you ever want a, a, a conversation starter with somebody that maybe is kind of interested in the Lord, but they, they don't, just ask them this. What do you think when Jesus came and died on the cross, what was He saving man from? Just ask them that question. Most will give an answer, He's saving us from our sins. And that is partially true. But the part that they're not considering, which allows you then to take them into a deeper conversation, is it's not just the sins that He's saving us from. He was saving us from the wrath of God that's been stored up against evil and against those who reject Him. We're not going to face the wrath of God in the end, church. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? If that doesn't, if that doesn't make you appreciative of the work of Christ on the cross for your sins and for the fact that you don't have to, your sins have been, your, the, the judgment against your sins has been satisfied in God's eyes. If it was not satisfied in God the Father's eyes, He would have left Jesus in the tomb. The resurrection is the, the you know, proof. Amen? It's so good. So good. The Word is so good, and God's gospel is so good. Now, we will have to stand at a judgment, but it's not a judgment unto salvation. 
It's a judgment unto rewards. It's a judgment of our works. Not works towards salvation. Nobody can be saved that way. We know that. So when we pass, uh, in fact, let me just give you a passage. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let me read it for you, okay? 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So when we pass from these bodies to the world beyond, we must each give account according to what each has done, whether good or whether bad. This is a judgment of the works of the believer. It's actually our motives for what we've done. That's what's being judged. When somebody does something good, they do a good work as a believer, okay? What God's going to be putting into that fire that is going to burn off what was wrongly motivated uh, from the stuff that was purely motivated is whether or not you did it for show. When I was a young pastor, I, you know, I had been a Christian for a few years. I got saved and I had been a Christian and then I went, you know, just grew in the Lord, was mentored, discipled and studied and and, but pastoral ministry was totally new to me. And it wasn't long after I became a senior pastor when I was 28 years old that a woman came to me and she said, well, I'm just really tired of serving in this ministry back in the corner where nobody ever thanks me. I never get any appreciation for what I do back here. I'm hidden. She even went to the point of saying, so many others, they stand on a platform. Everybody sees what they do. Nobody sees what I do. On that point, for the time that she was in that frame of mind, that, that wrong motivation, when she goes to heaven and that work back there hidden away that she was concerned that people didn't see, every bit of that's going to burn up in the fire. She'll have nothing to show for it. The only thing that will make it through that purifying fire in heaven are the works that truly you did unto the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that nobody can see it. It means that you're not doing it for the reason of people seeing it. See the difference? It's very likely that you can serve and people will come up and say, I really appreciate what you do. Don't go, oh, oh no, don't steal my reward in heaven. No, no, that's not what they're doing. They're not stealing it from you. They, you. You didn't do it for them to come to you, right? So therefore, it's still, it's going to be there for you in heaven. It's a reward. Praise God. Praise God. And think about the person who serves in a quiet, remote place of ministry, and nobody knows what they do. And they go about it with joy in their heart. Can you imagine when that goes in the fire, when it comes out, how beautiful that's going to be, the reward for them? When I was in Shillong, uh, up in uh, India, northern India, we went to Shillong. You know, Shillong's like Siliguri, like, you know, all these smaller, smaller towns. By the way, a small town in, in India is two or three million. Um, you know, we, we brag about New York City, you know, back in 2000 when I went, uh, I think New York was like 7 million people. 
um, uh, a city. Um, in Calcutta, back in 2000, it was 17 million people. And, it, and so we were in this little remote area. And we were staying at this lodge uh, for retreat, uh, for missionary retreat. And we were there, and one day, I got up in the morning, came out, and was talking to a couple brothers that worked there on the grounds. And uh, a man walks up, an elderly man. He stood about this tall, bald-headed. Remember the, remember the old Datsun commercials? Where the old, the, like an Asian guy with the ball cap? Remember that? That's what he looked like. He looked just like that guy. And he walks up, and he's standing there listening, and, and just smi when I'd look over at him, he'd just smile back. And I finally said, who are you? What's your name? And he, in his broken English, Brother Lalu. And I looked at them, and they were like, and I said, I said oh, bless your heart, brother. Uh, what, what do you do? He said, I'm a pastor. I said, oh, how wonderful. The guy must have been like 80 years old. I put one over my armor. Bless God bless you. Thank you for your service to the Lord. And these other guys are giggling. And I look back over. I said, what? And they say, uh, you, you don't know Brother Lalu. Uh, Brother Lalu, ask him how many people he pastors. And so I said, how many you pastors? He said, 50,000. I said, are you kidding me? Here's how he did it. He walked the foothills of the Himalayan mountains from village to village for decades, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches in these little towns by himself, raising up elders, training them, and 50,000 people spread all over the mountains were his flock. And nobody at Time Magazine, Life Magazine, ever heard of him. And we think Billy Graham and you know, we've got our heroes, and they are heroes. But can you imagine how shocked we're going to all be when the little brother Laulu step up and the Lord really elevates them because they did nothing except for the Lord? It just blesses my heart to think about them, and it just, that challenges me. That, that arrests me because I, I pastor in a consumer-based country and it's easy to fall into that trap. And you live in it. And you're ministers as well, right? He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So you're going to be uh, judged, by the reward, uh, judged by the works that you do. And it's hard here to not do it to be seen. It's hard to do it just to do it for the Lord. That's what's required here. That's what he's saying, okay? I'm sorry, there's no other way of getting around it. That's the reality. And uh, verse 12, let's keep moving. And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, this is not the judgment seat of Christ that you and I will stand at, this is now the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Interestingly, I want you to see back at the verse 12, 
and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. They are not standing there in order to plead their case. I think many times when I talk to somebody, I'll say, hey, what about when you die? Do you have a clue where you think you might go? Oh, I'm going to hell. And they're proud of it. Seriously? You, you really believe that that's good? Absolutely. I want to be with Satan down there. And, uh, and then others will say to me, uh, well, I'm going to heaven, but I got to tell you, I, I got a bone to pick with God when I get there. I need to know why he allowed this to happen in my life. Blah, blah, blah. And so he and I are going to have a talk. Um, Bertrand Russell. Remember Bertrand Russell? Mathematician, uh, philosopher, atheist. Uh, Bertrand Russell was asked before his death, uh, when you die, what will you do if you find out there is a God? And this was his response, calmly. I will simply tell him that he gave me insufficient evidence to believe that he existed. Right. Here it says, no, Bertrand Russell, unless he received Christ before his passing, it was, is going to stand. The standing is not to plead his case because the book of life has been opened. Either your name's in it or it's not. You're standing just like in our court system. While you're pleading your case, while you're trying to defend yourself, you are seated as your attorneys represent you. But then you come to the close of the arguments, and the judge says to you, I need you to stand. Now it's the pronouncement of a sentence. All those who have rejected Christ, for whatever reason, will stand, small and great, before the throne. And books opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead which, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 13. I just want to speak to that for a second if we can. If people are not listed in the book of life, then each one is judged according to his works. I don't think that we think of it this way, but this is a great way to share with people who are unsaved. If you receive Jesus Christ by faith, through the grace that He has offered you, then you will not be judged because your sins are upon Christ. He was judged for you. But if you choose to reject Christ who died for you, God came to earth to die for you, you reject that, now all of a sudden, you will be judged by God for your works. And the scripture says, none are righteous, no, not one. No man has ever been able to live according to the law of God on his own. So that's what you're basically doing is you're saying, okay, I'm just going to let my works speak for myself. And how many times have you heard somebody say that? Well, I'm a good person. I, I, I've done a lot of good things. I think that'll speak for me. You ought to take them to this passage. Here's the passage, okay? There are degrees of punishment for unbelievers according to, the, to their works. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 
through 24, Jesus speaks to that. Um, so they're going to be judged, and they're all going to go to hell. They will all go to hell. Now, a good question is, why does the sea give up its dead? Well, it's because it represents the place of unburied bodies. The emphasis is on the universal character of judgment. Everybody is included. Everybody. Nobody skips out. A body that was burned, God will raise. Okay? Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So the two holding places for those who die who are not saved will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What is? The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The last echoes of sin are now eliminated at that point in the end. There is nothing left of sin. It has all been thrown into the lake of fire, every sinner and every sin. Death is the result of sin, and that's gone. Hades is the result of death, and that's gone. The last remnants of sin's unlawful domination on the earth have now been completely, utterly destroyed by God. And the Bible says the judge of the universe must do right. And boy, does he big time. The great white throne of judgment. That's what we're focused on tonight. And thank God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if there's somebody watching right now by live stream, the gospel message is so simple. God never made the gospel to be so complicated that you have to get a degree in Latin and Hebrew and Greek to understand it. A child can be saved. You simply have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. The second person of the Trinity came to earth to die on the cross. He never sinned while he lived, and he went to the cross, and he took on my sin and your sin and everyone's sin. And he took on our punishment for sin. The wrath, the judgment, the anger of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why Jesus cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he satisfied every ounce of God's wrath and anger and vindication against sin because he said in his final words, it is finished. It's reconciled. I have done what is necessary to reconcile man back to God. And by the way, every human being has been reconciled to God. The problem is you have to believe to receive that reconciliation. It's there, but you have to receive it. And not every man will. The majority will not. So if you will surrender to the work of Christ, the Savior, the Lord, surrender to Him, believe in Him, you will be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That's as simple as that. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to repeat a prayer after some pastor. It's from your heart that you're saved. It's from your mouth that you declare it. That's how you're saved. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you tonight for your goodness and your love, and thank you that you have so written out and explained to us the things that we need to know about the end. These are sobering things that you're teaching us. 
You're not giving this to us so we can say, well, I've got my golden ticket. I'm good to go. And then we just rest on our laurels of salvation. Oh, no. You're sharing this with us tonight so that our heart becomes heavily burdened for our friends and our family members and the people that we look eye to eye to at work and that we see in our transportation each day to and from. Oh God, may our hearts burn with desire to explain the gospel to people, to love people enough to share the truth and live with the consequence. If they receive, oh, what great rejoicing. The Bible says that all heaven rejoices when a sinner repents of their sins. And those who reject, we are reminded of the words of Jesus who said, Blessed are you when men revile you and they speak all manner against you for my name's sake. It's a blessing to be persecuted for Christ. May we be faithful to the work that you've given us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless each of you.